The U.S. has experienced a hot summer so far, yet one group of students from historically black colleges and universities, HBUCs, are spending their time in heavy gear learning to fight wildfires. It's part of a partnership between the U.S. Forest Service and four HBCUs. Here with the details, the National Diversity Student Programs Manager, Stephanie Love. Ms. Love, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. First, let's talk about what these students are doing this summer and about this program. Absolutely. So having a pipeline of students pursuing an education in forestry and fire is crucial as the wildland fire crisis continues to rise. So we bring in a group of students from four HBCUs in the South. That's Tuskegee University, Alabama A&M University, Southern University, and Florida A&M University to train at the only on-site wildland fire academy hosted at an HBCU in the nation and that they get classes, certification opportunities, and the opportunity to practice live fire before being released out into the the world of work to pursue an internship um, after their training period is over. So they've received their training by now and they're all out um, working internships for the U.S. Forest Service. Wow. So the training took place at one of the colleges. Which one and what kind of facilities does it have there? Alabama A&M University is the host university. They are the only SAF accredited forestry degree program at an HBCU in the nation, ranked number nine out of all forestry schools in the nation. So it's only right that we would be there. They have a research forest where we can put live fire on the ground. And of course, all of the academic facilities that we need to host an educational academy. And this is a residency program that they had? Yes, they spend 28 days on campus. They get a chance to live in the dorms, eat in the calf, and study in the facilities, go out to the field. And the university hosted um, research sites. Well, that must be some final exam. To, to Do you have to put out a fire to be able to get your certification? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, in their internships now, that's what the status of the students is now. They are actually interns with the uh, Forest Service? Yes, most of them, and some of them with private industry. We put them in a position where they compete well for any forestry or fire position that they, they want in the nation, whether it's federal. Of course, we want them to come and work for us or private. So they're all across the country from Oregon all the way to North Carolina. And are they all firefighting or they're doing other things that might be related to forestry because there's a lot of topics in Absolutely. forestry? Absolutely. Some of them are doing wildlife biology. Some of them are doing soil science. Some of them are doing forest inventory and forestry, but they all have a collateral duty of wildland firefighting. So when the time comes, they're certified and ready to answer the call when dispatched to the fire. We're speaking with Stephanie Love. She is the National Diversity Student Programs Manager at the U.S. Forest Service. And tell us more about the National Diversity Student Programs themselves. This one was firefighting. What are some of the other ones that you offer? You know, diversity is one of the core values of the U.S. Forest Service. And we recognize that we have an opportunity to do better 
in building diversity. Society of American Foresters, according to them, African Americans and Hispanics make up 1.9% and 3.6% of bachelor's degrees in agricultural and natural resources sciences. So to help address this need, we have partnered with HBCUs in many areas, not just forestry and fire. In special uses administration, we have a similar camp that we invite students to participate in um, from any HBCUs. We have full-ride scholarships for the scholars who are eligible to, you know, pursue a career working for the great outdoors, but maybe not necessarily in the great outdoors, like computer science and accounting and business, anything that you can think of that supports the mission-critical occupations of our agencies. We have initiatives to support increased diversity and creating pipelines for these students to um, be employed by our agency. And I guess once they become employed, either, as you say, at the agency or at state agencies, perhaps, or in industry, because there's a big industry around forestry, they can become maybe agents for people to fo- like them to follow them into those fields. Absolutely. that That's how I got here. 24 years ago, I came in through a scholars program as a forester and, you know, have moved around in the agency and found something that I really like to do, which is bringing this whole thing full circle and talking to students who were once like myself. You know, these are underrepresented careers, especially among people of color. Many of the students may, may have never heard of forestry or fire or recognize it as an career of choice. My mission is to outreach, to create and increase awareness that working for the great outdoors is a career choice and an academic choice. And we're getting super response from the student population. And how many students go through the various programs in a given year and maybe give us a roll-up of how many over the years that you have run through the program? Wow, through the years we have, you know, almost 200 students have come through these programs over the years. We host about 15 students per year in the Wildland Forestry and Fire Program, and the Special Uses Program is just getting ramped up, and we hope to host about 10 this year, so um, we're on a roll. And just define for us special uses in the context of forestry. Permits have to be issued on national forest land for filming of movies and mining and mineral and root harvesting, Christmas tree harvesting, um, all of the wonderful natural resources and accesses to the national resource that we have on national forest lands have to go through a permitting process. And that happens through our special uses division. That's just another way that we continue to, you know, fully engage with the communities that we serve. We want to reflect the richness and diversity throughout our agency and all the mission-critical occupations that allow us to do business. These programs are selective. That is to say you get more applicants than you can fit in each year? Yes, we do. We get more applicants than we can fit in each year, and it's competitive. So there are GPA requirements for some of them. It's highly competitive. Sure. How do you follow up? after they leave the program and do you follow them throughout their early parts of their careers? 
Oh, yes, we've been tracking since the 90s. This particular program hasn't been going on through the 90s, but we've had diversity initiatives that have been going on with our, you know, partnerships with our agency since 1992. And we've we've tracked every single student from all initiatives since 1992, including myself. Yeah, so so you're a success story of this yourself. Absolutely. Now, you've got an administrative office type of job, though. Do you ever get out into the forest yourself once in a while and just hug a tree? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I miss it so much. Um, And programs like this give me the opportunity to share my experiences and, you know, create nostalgia for myself. Um, I can go back in time when I was, you know, young like the students and enjoying the outdoors, and I still do. So absolutely, I get out there every now and then. Well, you sound like a great mentor. Stephanie Love is the National Diversity Student Programs Manager at the U.S. Forest Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. 
What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed 
Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.